first chapter of the book of Ephesians. I suppose if I was to put, uh, pick one of uh, Paul's epistles in the New Testament and say that's my favorite of Paul's epistles, it would probably be the book of Ephesians. I love the book of Romans and the great doctrinal treaties concerning our salvation. I love the books of First and Second Corinthians, the great tr- practical truths concerning the body of Christ, the local church. I love the book of Philippians. I love the book of Colossians. I love all of the books, the pastoral epistles that Paul wrote and the practical application to the church. But there's something about the book of Ephesians. It takes us to a place that no other New Testament epistle does. It seems as though all the other New Testament epistles are grounded firmly in earth and in the truths of the Christian walk daily. But the book of Ephesians takes us to loftier heights. And shows us the truths of who we are in Jesus Christ, not in a far-reaching day, but in this day that we live in. I've encouraged you to uh, read Ephesians chapter number 2 and to read a few verses found there to give us an idea. And uh, as I was reading this again, I was struck by uh, another verse that, that just stuck in my mind and in, in many ways sums up what we're studying here in the book of Ephesians. What we're doing is we're taking seven times the phrase in whom is found in the book of Ephesians. Seven different times. And they relate to us the life of the believer and his position in Jesus Christ. John summed it up well when he said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. John didn't say one day we're going to be the sons of God. He didn't say one day if we just hold out and persevere we'll be the sons of God. But John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. But then he made this statement. He said, But it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Can I say to you tonight that if I'm as good as I'm going to get, that's a discouraging thought. Amen? (laughs) If I'm right now as as Christ-like as I'll ever be, that's a discouraging thought. If the state that I'm in right now was to be the state that I'd spend eternity in, That would be a greatly discouraging thought tonight. The Bible teaches that there's a greater day coming. We cannot hope for the eradication of sin and of the sinful flesh on this side of heaven. And John acknowledges that. He says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. He doesn't say it hasn't appeared. He said, it doth not yet appear. In other words, not just past tense, but it's not going to appear in this line. You're never going to be perfect in this line. But you find as you study the great doctrines of salvation, glorification, and sanctification, justification, and uh, adoption, all these great truths, redemption and reconciliation, you'll find this truth. Now, I want you to listen carefully. Everything that you will ever be, you are right now positionally in the person of Jesus Christ. Practically, you are not those things. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, the Bible teaches that I have a justified relationship with Christ. And we sometimes think of justification as just as if I'd never sinned. But that's not an entirely honest and accurate uh, definition. You say, why, preacher? Because Adam was not justified when he had fellowship in innocence with God. Uh, Adam knew what innocence was. He knew what it was to walk with God in the cool uh, of the day. He knew what it was to hear His voice and to uh, feel the tender pressure of His hand in His But can I say to you that there's something sweeter that the blood-washed, born-again believer knows tonight. And it's through justification we know grace tonight. We know what it is to be fallen 
but then to be redeemed. We know what it is to be sin sick and to be healed by His grace. We know what it is to be condemned to a devil's hell and then justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. All those things that I described to you in this moment, I am those things in Christ. But can I say to you that I don't always live and walk as a justified believer. I'm sanctified right now in Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks upon me, He sees the blood of His only begotten Son. He sees perfection. He sees sinlessness, spotlessness, guiltlessness, blamelessness, above reproach and without shame. But if you were to look at my life, that's not all that you'd see. You'd see a sinner saved by God's grace with a life full of mistakes, failings, and shortcomings. So we see that there's two elements to who we are. There's what we are positionally in Christ. In other words, what we are because we are in Him. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We have been placed into the body of Christ and into the person of Christ. And the Bible says we're seated together with Him in heavenly places right now. In other words, as I made note of it this morning, the Bible teaches that we are accepted in the Beloved. In Ephesians 1.6 That means that God loves us just like He loves His own Son, Jesus Christ. When He sees us, He sees the person of Christ. When we pray, He hears the prayers of His Son. When we cry out, He hears the cries of His only begotten. That's who we are in Him. Not by Him, through Him, of Him, or with Him, but in Him. You say, preacher, what's the difference? Because we can be something by Him temporarily. We can be something with Him temporarily. We can be something through Him temporarily. We can be something of Him temporarily. But if we're something in Him, then that state is tied directly to the eternal nature and the unchangeableness of the Son of God. Nothing can shake who I am in Jesus Christ tonight. Nothing can alter who I am in Jesus Christ tonight. Nothing can corrupt who I am in Jesus Christ tonight. Why? Because my I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ in God. It's in Him and it's vouchsafed and safeguarded against the stain and corruption of sin of this world and of my own failings. We see that we're in Him and there's seven things that are mentioned. Last week we began by looking at the fact that in Him we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And it's interesting to note that the first two things that are described uh, last week's and then this week's are things that Christ has done for us. We'll find as we continue on, there are some things that we have done that have placed us in Him, in whom ye also trusted after that ye believed. But you'll find the first two things are things that Christ did for us, things that He did in His finished work on Calvary. Do you know God always makes the first move? <laughs> You say, oh, preacher, are you talking about the total depravity of man? No, that's not what I'm talking about. I believe man has a choice in coming to God. I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that though a man must hear the word of God first, if he's to respond in faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If God hadn't given his word, there wouldn't be a single sinner that would come to know Christ. Because it's through the Word of God. We're born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So God made the first move. God always makes the first move. And it's interesting in this study of seven different phrases that God once again made the first move. And we find first off that He died for our sins to redeem us. And in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. But I want us to read a few verses tonight. And I want us to catch another thought 
and just to store it away in our heart. Verse 3 sums up this idea and this thought when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I want you to make a note of that because it, it summarizes our study. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings, not necessarily in earthly places. There's plenty of blessings we're without in earthly places. Now, there's some things God chooses to bless us with. There's other things that we do not have. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. It'd be nice to be blessed with a nicer car and a bigger house and a nicer set of clothes and maybe finer food. Those would be great things to be blessed with. Not all of us are. Some of us are. But the Bible says that He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings, not practically in our everyday walk, but positionally in Jesus Christ, in heavenly places, in Christ. Sums up this whole thought. Look at verse number 4. The Bible says, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's an important phrase. You'll find it over and over again in the book of Ephesians. Wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Here's our first in whom. In whom we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. Now, I want you to notice this is our second in whom. And it's the one we'll focus on tonight. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our, redeem of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this wonderful group of people. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may behold wondrous things out of Your law. God, make it real to us tonight. Help it not just to be ideology or theology. Help it not to be something dead and hollow and empty, but something alive and vibrant, something that puts its claws into our life and shows us the practicality of the Christian walk. We love you tonight, Lord, and we ask you to do all the heart's work that needs to be done. Oh, it fails us to do it, Lord. We cannot do it, but we ask you through the Holy Spirit to do in hearts what needs to be done tonight. We love you, Lord, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to just take a moment and examine this idea of an inheritance. The Bible says, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I studied this series out, 
And it seems as though it's almost this way. If you study a series in the Word of God, a series of thoughts or phrases or truths, it seems as though there's always one or two that just sticks out. And I'm going to be honest with you tonight. Now, let me finish. Don't brand me a heretic. But, but there always seems one or two that it just seems like they don't fit. Amen? Uh, they just seem to stick out in an odd way. And as I read this passage and as I looked at all these different in whom's that are given of who we are in Jesus Christ, it was interesting to me that we're told here not of necessarily who we are, but of something that we have obtained in Him. Something that we have in Him. And the Bible calls it an inheritance. But as I began to study this further, I began to realize that this inheritance is vital to who we are in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to keep you on edge all night. I'll tell you what that inheritance is in a few moments. But we look at that word inheritance. Now, I just want to structure it this way. I want to take just a few moments. And I want us to look at the provider of this inheritance. Look again at verse number 11. You'll find that word inheritance is found three times in this chapter. And the first one is our text verse. In whom? Now, this is speaking of Christ. In Christ also. We have obtained an inheritance. Now notice this, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. We find as we read this passage that the focus is on the person of Christ. And that's quite fitting. You know, uh, we need to be careful lest we divorce practical definition from biblical words. Did you hear me tonight? We need to be careful lest we divorce practical definitions from biblical words. Because it's easy sometimes to read that word inheritance and try to warp it and, and shift it and change it and mold it to mean something other than what it means. But if I was to ask you tonight what an inheritance is, if I was to ask you how do you get an inheritance, where does an inheritance come from, I'd get a unanimous answer, I'm sure, that you get an inheritance because somebody has died and left something to you. I don't know if you realize everything we got when Christ died on Calvary. Very few Christians do. I know I'm thankful that as a little child, I didn't have to understand everything about Calvary to be saved. I'd still be waiting to get saved. Somebody say amen right there. If I had to wait until I knew everything of what Calvary meant, I'd still be waiting to this day. But in childlike faith, I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. And glory to God, He saved me by His grace. I'm thankful for that tonight. But you'll find in the Christian walk that as you go further and further, you source this inheritance back to the death of Christ on Calvary. An inheritance is purchased by a death. Let me give you confirmation. That Turn with me in the book of Hebrews to chapter number 9. Book of Hebrews chapter number 9. I want to read just about three verses to you. Hebrews chapter number 9. And I want you to look with me at verse number 13. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, uh, 13... For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we find that through the death of Christ we're enabled to serve God for one. But it says, and for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament. We find that the age and dispensation of grace was ushered in through the cross of Calvary. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, 
they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. We find that word in inheritance again. Now look at what it says here. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. We find that it would be impossible for us to obtain this inheritance without the death of Christ upon Calvary. This is the beautiful thing about Christianity. This is the difference between a martyr's death and a Savior's death. Are you ready? A martyr might be able to die and leave something behind. A Savior is able to rise from the dead and hand it right to you through grace. That's the difference. You see, all that there could be upon the account of Christ when He died for you and when He died for me would be inaccessible were it not for the effectual and physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says He's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. You say, why is that? Because He effectually saves us. It's not just merely a a mystical and magical transaction that takes place by believing in a historical event, but putting our faith in Christ, the risen Savior, and He, by the power of God, saves us through grace. This will help you if you doubt your salvation tonight. Because many times we have this idea, well, I hope I believed enough. I hope I believed in the right way. I hope I said the right words. Hey, neighbor, you're, you're asking the wrong question. The question that you got to ask is, did He save me? Did He save me? If He said He'd save you, He'll save you. <laughs> That's why we have a lot of confusion. You see, we say, oh, I, I just hope I did it the right You didn't do anything if you got saved. The Savior did it all if you got saved. He saved you. He effectually saved you. He completely saved you. We find that the death of the provider was necessary. But I want you to notice there's a second thing found in this verse. And you can go back to Ephesians chapter number 1. I want you to notice, this is important understanding it, the design of the provider of this inheritance. Look again at what it says. It says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Now, the Calvinists get it wrong in this way because they read that verse and they get tied up on the predestinated without following the verse down to see where it leads. You say, Preacher, do you believe in predestination? Yes, I do. You say, do you believe in the predestination of souls to heaven or hell? I'd say, no, I don't. Predestination is a Bible doctrine, but never does it pertain to the free will choice of man in coming to Jesus Christ. And there's a difference between predestination and foreknowledge. You say, what's the difference? Foreknowledge is what God has. Predestination is what God does. God has foreknowledge concerning salvation. God knows who's going to be saved. God knows who's going to be lost. And let me tell you what grace is. The Bible says that Christ has tasted death for every man. Christ died for people he knew would reject him. That's grace. It wouldn't have been grace if he hadn't done that. Because grace is freely offered to all that would come to it. God made a way for any man, woman, or child to come to know the Savior. He made a way. I'll give you a little anecdote, and I've shared this with you before, but I think it helps clarify things. Uh, a Calvinist uh, was once talking to a preacher, and he, he asked this question. And he said, I want to ask you something. I want to tell you why I believe in Calvinism. He says, let's say there's an orphanage full of children, and I predestine that I'm going to go and to adopt one of those children. And I go down, and I have a child picked out, and I go, and I find that child, and I adopt that child, and I give that child a home, and I love it, and, and I take care of it. He said, would you consider me cruel because I didn't adopt the other children? And the preacher said, no, I wouldn't have a problem with it at all with the way that you described it. 
But he said, let me tell you what I would have a problem with. I'd have a problem if you sent word down to the orphanage that whosoever will could be adopted. That any and all could be adopted. That you're coming and you'll take any and all that will come unto you. And then you showed up and just took one or two. He said, I'd have a problem with that. <laughs> That's the problem. You say, what's the problem with Calvinism? John 3.16 is the problem with Calvinism. Whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth, that any and all can come to the Savior, that we come freely to drink of those rivers of living water. That's the problem with Calvinism and predestination as it pertains to, to pre-election and to salvation. Now, that's the problem. It's anti-scriptural. But the Bible teaches predestination. Look how it relates to it. If you follow this, look at verse number 12. What are we predestined to? Being predestinated according, so we're predestinated according to the purpose of Him. We're predestinated for God's purpose. Who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. This is what we're predestinated to. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Those that have put their faith in Christ are predestinated to be the praise of His glory. Uh, let's put it this way. John, John summarized it pretty clearly when he said, but we know that when He shall appear. We shall be, let me tell you something. I'm going to be completely Christ-like one of these days. It, 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 it may be through the dirt. It may be through the rapture. But one of these days, the sin's going to be eradicated from my body. The selfishness and the pride and the shortcomings, the insecurities will all be taken away and I'll be given a glorified body in Jesus Christ one of these days. No matter what condition I die, it doesn't matter if I'm still preaching the gospel and standing for the word of God. It doesn't matter if I've quit and run out on ministry. It doesn't matter what a wreck I may have made in my life. One of these days, one of these days, in the blink of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, and in a moment I'll be changed. One of these days. We find that we're given this inheritance according to this purpose. There's a design. This is going to help you in understanding what this inheritance is. This inheritance is not given to us like most inheritances are to bolster our bank account, to give us nicer things. But this inheritance that's being spoken of here is given that we might be to the praise of His glory. It's an inheritance that's to make us more Christ-like. We see the provider of this inheritance. But look down with me at verses 13 and 14. We see the promise of this inheritance. Look what it says in verse 13. In whom ye also trusted... After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Notice this phrase, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, most of you, we've talked about this before. You know what earnest money is. And now we call it down payment money. And earnest money at one time was given to show two things. It was given to give two things. Are you ready? It was given concerning the surety, the surety of the promise of purchase. But it was given as a sample that there was more to come. The surety and the sample of the inheritance. Now, the Bible says about the Holy Spirit of God that He is the down payment or the earnest of our inheritance. Now, this begins to unlock this thing a little bit. First, we know that this inheritance is given not for monetary value, but we know that it is given that we might be more Christ-like. We know that it's given through the death of Christ upon Calvary. And then we find out that the Holy Spirit of God is a small portion of this inheritance. So it's kind of beginning to unravel before our eyes. 
we find first off this surety. Boy, I like this. I, you know, I was talking to a fellow the other day and we was talking about, you know, some people make professions that they know the Lord, but their life don't show it. And I'm not one of these that, that goes around somebody with a, or with a magnifying glass, looks for them to make a mistake and then tries to beat them into believing they're not saved. I'm not saying that, but some people, they, uh, you know, they go in the waters and they come out and, and that's, that's what they think salvation is. They've never been saved though. They've never accepted Christ as their, as their Savior and they're not a new creature in Him. We're talking about, that, and we're talking about people that quit on God and everything. And he used a phrase. He said, uh, he said, well, brother, that's just the perseverance of the saints. And by the way, that's a Calvinistic term. It's the doctrine that we will persevere through our own energy. But the Bible says it's possible for man to get so backslid on God that he forgets he was washed from his old sins. But... I made this statement. I correct him. You know, preachers are loudmouth know-it-alls. You know that, Ralph? We can't hear nothing without having to correct somebody. I said, brother, I said, I agree with you, but I said, let me make a change in your statement. I said, I don't believe in the perseverance of saints. I believe in the preservation of the Spirit of God. The Bible says that we are sealed under the day of redemption by the Holy Ghost. In other words, when Christ saved you, He made a promise to you. The Bible says in John chapter number 16 that He would give us the Spirit of truth, the Comforter, that He would be in us and with us. And Christ made this statement, forever. He'd never leave you. He'd never depart from you. When God saved you, He saved you, and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. That, that's a part. We speak often of Christ living in our hearts. And I, I know what we mean. I don't, I don't quarrel with that statement. I, I believe there's a degree of accuracy to it. But Christ is not living in our hearts. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But the Spirit of God, who, by the way, is just as much God as the Son and the Father are, has taken up residence in your life and in my life, and He has sealed us. Our salvation, listen to me now, is not in our hands tonight. It's in stronger hands than ours. It's not in our capacity to remain righteous. Because we weren't righteous when He saved us. But it rests solely upon the Spirit of God. We are sealed by Him. When you put a seal upon something, that does a number of things. For one thing, it puts your approval on it. The seal is the proof that something's been done right. The Spirit of God is the proof that He saved us. There's no single person living in this day that is saved that does not have the Spirit of God within them. Every single person that have been born again has the Spirit of God living within them to comfort and convict and guide them. And if you don't have the Spirit of God living within you, it's because you've never been saved. Am I all right tonight? Is that not true? Every single blood-washed, born-again believer alive today has the Spirit of God living within them. It is the proof. It is the watermark and the acid test of our salvation. We have been sealed. God said, I saved you and I put my Spirit within you. But it does something else. It contains something. Some of you uh, still do some canon. Nothing wrong with that, is there? <laughs> Why do we call it canon? It should be jarring, shouldn't it? Doesn't that make sense? Some of you still do some canning. And you, you, you wait and you get everything set up. And what you're looking for is you're looking for that seal. You're looking for that air to be drawn and for it to be sealed. You know why? Because if it's sealed, nothing can get into it and nothing can get out of it. The seal is the mark of preservation. When you uh, when you seal up, if you can green beans, uh, and in six months you don't want to open them and then be carrots. You've done something wrong, amen. 
No, you see, when you when you put that seal on it, what you're doing is you're safeguarding it from corruption and from transformation and from change. And when the Spirit of God took up residence in your life, you belong to the Savior. You do not belong to the devil. You cannot be indwelled by a demon. Uh, you cannot be uh, uh, dropped from grace. You cannot lose your salvation. You were sealed in Him. And all this is a result of the Spirit of God. Notice the second thing, though. It's the sample of the inheritance. That's what down payment money is. You go to the bank and you pay, you know, whatever, 20% down, and you say, this is a promise that there's more coming. It's a sample. That money that you give them is the same type of money that you're going to give them. And the Spirit of God is just that. He's a sample. A sample of the good things to come. Now we're beginning to unravel this inheritance. The Spirit of God, what is His purpose? The Spirit of God is in our lives to make us more Christ-like. Listen to what it says in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. What the Spirit of God is doing in your life as you yield to Him and obey Him is He's taking your life and making it more Christ-like. Let me tell you something, church. This is a lot simpler than we give it credit for. When the Spirit of God convicts you, if you obey Him with your life and yield to Him, and you, you consistently on a daily basis yield your heart and life to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God, you will become more Christ-like. It's that simple. We've really tried to make it complex, but it's really not that complex. When the Spirit of God convicts you, you obey and you'll become more Christ-like. Because he does not speak of himself, but he speaks of Christ. And that's uh, true not only in the church, but in the life of the believer as well. He speaks of Christ. The wishes and desires of the Son of God. Uh, the actions and attitude of the Son of God. He relates these to our lives. And as we yield to him, we become more Christ-like. So we learn that what the purpose of this inheritance is, is to make us Christ-like. And the Spirit of God is a portion of that inheritance. And he's making us more Christ-like. He's the promise of this inheritance. I know you've been waiting. Let's look at the particulars of this inheritance. I want you to look with me at verse number 18. The Bible says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I know we've jumped in the middle of a phrase, but Paul is praying for the uh, church at Ephesus, and he says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to underscore that phrase that you may know, that you may know. Paul says, my prayer is that you would know the hope of his calling and the riches, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Paul says, I want you to know what it is you have in Christ. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, by the promise, by the earnest. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Let me say, first off, we see the abundance of this inheritance. It is abundant. It is abundant. We have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. The inheritance is the spiritual blessings and empowerment that God's given us. And listen, I know, I, I, and we can argue about it all day long. Uh, you know, I, the, the Bible says mansion, and I believe mansion. But 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 I just kind of tend to believe that all these things that mean so much to us down here are not going to mean a lot to us there. So what is this inheritance really about? 
You say, I want a big mansion. Well, that's great. Let, let's, let's, let's find out why you need a big mansion. Do you need a big mansion to, uh, to, so you can lock out the thieves and the robbers and the adulterers? No, there ain't none in heaven. Do, do you need well-insulated walls so that you can keep uh, cool in the summertime and, and warm in the wintertime? No, the Bible says that the, the weather is so temperate that the tree of life blooms every month. You say, well, you know, I need a nice kitchen. Well, all you're going to be eating is fruit. <laughs> Amen. And I kind of have a, I have a tendency to believe that, that, you know, you're not even going to have to eat that. I don't know that, but I kind of believe you're not even going to have. You say, well, I need a nice bedroom so that I could go to sleep at night. Well, the problem is the Bible says there's no night there. But the Son of God is the light, and there's no sun. It's an eternal day. So all these things that are so important to us about a mansion, you say, preacher, do you believe it's going to be a mansion? Yeah, I believe it's going to be a mansion. But all these things that are so vital about it really aren't going to mean anything to us when we get to heaven. If that's our inheritance, I'm going to be a wee bit discouraged. That's not really going to be... You say, well, maybe it'll be great riches. Well, the streets are paved with gold. Is that really going to be that important? What is this inheritance that Christ has given us? If all these things of monetary value are irrelevant in the glorious realm of God's heaven, then what is this inheritance? The inheritance is the Spirit of God that lives within us and the spiritual graces that God has given us to become more Christ-like. That's the inheritance. The inheritance, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. It spells it out very, or Second Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter number 1. It spells it out very plainly. Second Peter chapter number 1. I want you to look at what Peter says about it. We'll close with this thought. Second Peter chapter number 1. If I can get over there myself, amen. Second Peter chapter number 1. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now listen carefully. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This inheritance, what is it? The inheritance is the precious promises. It is the Spirit of God. It is the help and grace of God. It is all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We see the abundance of this inheritance, but we see the acquisition of it. How do we grab hold of it? How does it mean something to us? That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Let me tell you something tonight. Let me just put it very plainly. And I, I promise you I'm done. I just want to share my heart with you. Isn't it something that God's given us His Word and if we obey it, we find peace? That's something. I mean, isn't it something tonight that God's given us the answer book? Isn't it something tonight that not only has God given us the truth of His Word, but the Spirit of God? 1 John 2.27, you have no need that any man teach you. But that unction, that anointing, is what teacheth us. The Spirit of God to apply the truth. The Bible says that the natural man receiveth not the things of, uh, of God, for they're spiritually discerned. He cannot understand them, uh, but they're discerned by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God that lives within us makes plain to us the Word of God. You say, preacher, I don't understand the Word of God. There's, there, there's two things it could be. 
Now, are you ready? I'm not trying to I'm not trying to shiver anybody's timbers tonight. One of them could be that you've never been born again. You don't have the Spirit of God within you. But let me be very clear in saying there's plenty of people that are saved tonight that don't understand the Word of God. I don't do that to give you a false uh, a false anxiety any more than I do it to give someone else a false assurance. But let me tell you another reason. Most of us, we've got so many things wedged between us and the Spirit of God in our life, us and Christ. When we open the Word of God, it's so dead to us because we're not trying to apply it to our lives and we're not walking with the Spirit of God. That's what it is for most of us. Most, And I don't mean most everybody in the world, I mean most of us that have been saved. We know we've been born again, but we don't understand the Word of God. The Spirit of God cannot apply it to our hearts because He's still trying to work in our life and we're not letting Him. I'm not saying that book's ever going to be without mystery to you, because it's always with mystery. Always. But I'm saying this, that through the Spirit of God, we have the capacity to read the Word of God, to understand it, to apply it to our lives. That's the inheritance. The inheritance is that which is making us more according to His purpose as Ephesians 1 teaches us, more according to His... What's His purpose? We're predestinated that we might be conformed to the image of His dear Son. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. We're going to become, when we see Him that day. You know what Paul said? Paul said, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Paul said that I'll put off this vile body for a glorious body. I'll put off the heartache, pain, and sorrow, and I'll have no more of it anymore. And I'll become like my Savior. What do you think Paul was talking about when he said that we are to strive, we are to press forward, we are not to look back, but we are to press forward, press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. What's that calling? That calling is to be more Christ-like. Paul said, not that I have already apprehended, but I follow after. Paul said, I'm not saying. He said, if that I may apprehend, listen carefully, apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Why was Paul saved on that road to Damascus? Why were you saved whenever you were saved? You were saved for what purpose? To be to the praise of His glory. That's the purpose. That's the design why God saved you. Ephesians chapter 1, that's the to be to the praise of His glory. That's why Paul was apprehended. That's why God pulled him over that day. That's why God knocked him off his high horse and blinded him and saved him by His grace to make him more Christ-like. That's why he was apprehended. Paul said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. Paul said, I'm trying to grab hold of this idea of being Christ-like. Paul said, that I may know Him. That I may know Him. Paul said, I'm trying to grab hold of this idea of being Christ-like. Make it real and apprehend this and make it something in my life and become more Christ-like. This inheritance is given that we might do that. How do we do it? Put it very plain. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promise, promises that by these you might be made partakers of the divine nature. Read that book. Obey it. Apply it. Make it your life. Obey the Spirit of God. When you do that, you know what you do? You enter into that inheritance that He's given you. 